John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And now Carl will bring what the Lord's laid on his heart to share with us today. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your grace in Jesus. Lord, thank you that we've been able to reflect on that already this morning. And we ask now that as we come to think about what baptism means, that you would help us to see even more clearly the grace uh, that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and in your Holy Spirit who has come to unite us with him uh, and to dwell in us. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, you or a month and a bit ago, actually, probably, we were doing a series that you might remember. We were looking at some of the big questions that people had about Christianity, uh, that Christians have about Christianity, about Christian uh, teachings. And today we're kind of circling back to uh, think about one more question, uh, and that question is the question of baptism. Baptism is an issue that Christians disagree about. Uh, in this church, for instance, we have people who hold different views about baptism. I, for instance, think that it's right that, baptize, uh, that children in the church who are being discipled to know and love Jesus should be baptised. While Steve, uh, one of the other, our other pastor, uh, Steve holds that baptism is for those who have explicitly come to faith. Uh, in fact, some of my theological heroes uh, hold different views to me. Uh, people like Don Carson or John Piper or Charles Spurgeon are people who live in the, in the other camp. Well, they live in the other camp. And whose name we will never mention again in this, in this church. Uh, and I think most of us are like that. Uh, whether, whether, you know, whatever... Uh, position we hold, there are others who we respect and we love uh, who hold different views. And that's, uh, most of us recognise that, uh, that there are people who are sincere and godly people who have different views on baptism to us, and we recognise that that is uh, okay because baptism is not a matter of salvation. You don't need to nail 
uh, what baptism means in order to be saved. Because of that truth, because of those truths, uh, in this church we've decided that baptism won't be an issue over which we divide. Which is not to say that we're ambivalent about it. This church has a position on on baptism, uh, and that's what I want to try and outline today. Uh, But we also leave it to individuals, prayerfully before God in good conscience, to uh, determine what they ought to do with respect to baptism. Uh, As I'm always at pains to say, that's not because on either side, whichever position we take, that's not because we don't think that it matters, uh, or because we don't think that there's an answer, but it's that we don't think that it is such a crucial matter, a matter of salvation, it's not such a crucial matter that we think we need to divide over it. But as I thought about baptism over the years, and I've been thinking about it for a very long time now, the book uh, which I'm almost finished has been in the process for about 10 or 15 years. Uh, As I've thought about it, I've come to realise that there's actually far more that we agree on about baptism uh, than we disagree on. And in fact, I think we can travel almost the whole journey together before we might disagree. And so what I want to focus on today mainly is those things on which I think we can agree. And then at the end, I want to say a little bit about uh, who I think baptism is for and why. So the story of baptism begins, surprisingly perhaps, right at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, The Bible says that God made the world and that God made it good. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, were perfect and blameless, and they lived in a perfect relationship with God Uh, in God's world, under God's rule. But Adam and Eve uh, and humanity rejected God's rule over them. They rebelled against God and they set off to do uh, their own thing and to do uh, their own thing without God. They put themselves in the place of God rather than under God as God's people and under God's authority. That act of rebellion, that one act, had enormous consequences. It plunged our world into chaos. It upended our relationship with God. God cast us out of his presence. And now our relationship with God is in ruins. And we see that in our own lives and the brokenness of our own lives as we look around. And we see that in the brokenness of our world. So Adam and Eve and humanity with them rejected God's authority, but straight away in Genesis 3.15, God promised to remedy that situation. In Genesis 3.15, God promised to raise up a descendant of Eve who will destroy evil and Satan and rescue God's people. A few chapters later, though, in Genesis chapter 6, we find that things have continued to go downhill. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, and you'll find this along with a number of other Bible verses uh, on a a sheet that hopefully you received on the way in. In Genesis 6 verse 5, we're told that God looked at the world and he saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Human evil had reached such great heights and God decides to put an end to it. 
He decides to clean up the world and to begin again with one man, and that man is Noah and his family. And so to clean up the world, God sends a flood. But Noah builds an ark and he and his family and loads of the animals are saved from destruction by going into that ark with Noah and saved from the destruction that God brings on the earth. And you might think, well, fantastic. You know, here's this one guy. He's a good guy. He's following God. God saved him and his family. He's going to begin again with this, with this new humanity and, and the world is going to be great again. But what happens is they come out of the ark. It's almost, you know, no days have passed. They come out of the ark. Noah gets drunk, lying around naked, and his son comes in and starts lusting after his father. God's begun again with Noah and his family, but humanity are just as sinful as they were before. Noah and the flood raises, at the beginning of the Bible, this profound question which is how can God clean up the world? And how can God clean up the world and begin again with this new humanity? Where will he find this new humanity? Who can he choose who will be, through whom he will begin again who is holy and blameless and whose family is holy and blameless? Well, the answer to that question begins to be fleshed out already a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. God promises Abraham that through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. And you might think, wow, so maybe Abraham is the guy uh, who's going to be this beginning of this new family, this new people of God. But Abraham isn't the answer. Abraham is just as flawed as Noah is. But instead, God promises Abraham, like he promised Eve in Genesis 3, God promises Abraham that from him will come a descendant through whom God will save a people for himself. That descendant of Abraham will do what Noah failed to do. That single descendant of Abraham will walk before God and be blameless. And from that one descendant of Abraham will come a family of people who love God and serve him with all their heart. And the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of uh, Genesis is looking out for this promised descendant. Is it? Abraham's son Isaac. No, it's not Isaac. Is it Abraham's son Jacob or Esau? No, it's definitely not Esau. Is it Jacob? No, it's not Jacob either. Is it Joseph? It's not Joseph. Is it Moses? Is it King David? No, it's none of those people. The Old Testament is full of this search for this one descendant of Eve, this one descendant of Abraham, through whom God will raise up for himself a people who walk before him in holiness and blamelessness. But God also gives Abraham not only that promise, but something else as well. God gives him a sign so that those uh, with him would remember the promise. God gives uh, them the sign of male circumcision. And you might think, whoa, slow down. What is going on with that? How is that a helpful sign? Well, it might seem like a strange sign to us, But we have to think about what the promise was. The promise was the promise of a descendant. It was a promise of this single descendant from Abraham through whom God would save a people for himself. 
And so the sign was about descendants. This single descendant through whom God would raise up a people who would serve him and love him with all their heart. So the first step in God's plan to clean up the world is this promise of a saviour. A saviour from Eve, a saviour from Abraham, and ultimately too, a saviour from King David and his family line as well. But how is God going to do that? How is God going to save this people? How is he going to destroy evil without destroying everybody along with it? The answer to that question is hinted at in a number of ways in Genesis, but it becomes much clearer in the second book of the Bible, that is the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God gives the people the law. Now, the law told people what God expected of them. Uh, It put flesh on the bones of what it meant to be blameless before God, what it meant to live perfectly in accord with who God is and, uh, and what he desires of us. But if all we understand about the law is that it tells us what we need to do, we've missed the point. You see, the problem was that even though the law was only a summary of God's purpose, it's like the ten dot points of what it means to follow God, even though it was only a summary of God's plan and purpose for us, we still couldn't keep the summary. We couldn't even keep the summary version, let alone the full extent of what it means to live in a perfect relationship with the God who made us and who loves us. And so when God gave the law, he not only gave the commands, he not only gave the summary of what it means to live with him, he also gave a complex system of rituals uh, in order to uh, provide a daily living illustration of how God would save a people for himself. The two key parts of those living pictures, those living illustrations, were sacrifices and cleansing or washing. The sacrifices were the way that God showed the path back into a relationship with him. The way back into a relationship with God was through a substitute taking the penalty that the people deserved for their rejection of God. So when the people would fail to obey one of uh, uh, God's laws, they would bring a sacrifice and they would put their hands on the head of that sacrifice and they would confess their sins and the priest would kill the sacrifice as a way of saying this sacrifice, the life of this sacrifice is taken in the place of you and your sin. The ultimate penalty for rejecting God is death and judgment. And so when the people failed keep one of God's laws that they would bring this sacrifice if you and I are are to be reconciled to God uh, the law was telling us and continues to tell us if we are to be reconciled to God we need to be forgiven and for us to be forgiven someone needs to take the punishment for us to be reconciled to God Now, no animal can take that sacrifice. No animal can pay that penalty. But the law, the Old Testament law, showed the principle of another life in the place of our life in order that we might be forgiven. So the first key part of the law, apart from the summary of what it means to live for God, was the sacrifices, a life in the place of our life. 
But the second key part of the law was a whole lot of bathing and washing rituals. If you're super keen on those, you can find them in Leviticus 11 to 15. And the basic idea of those washing rituals was this idea called uncleanness. And the basic idea of uncleanness was this, that the world is full of things that are clean and unclean. The world is full of things that make us dirty. And in order for God to keep living with his people, uh, among his people in his temple, they had to make sure that they cleaned the dirt that accrued in their lives, the dirt and the disease that accrued in their life, and that polluted them and made them unfit to be in the presence of God. Now, all those ceremonies and systems were concerned with physical dirt. It was things like leprosy or boils, you know, or, uh, uh, or mildew in, that, in a house, things like that. But all that physical dirt and that physical disease was a picture of a deeper problem. It was a picture of sin and rebellion against God that pollutes our lives. So Jesus explained it to the religious leaders of his day. You'll find uh, that in Matthew 23 on uh, that sheet. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, he was explaining to them what all these Old Testament cleansing and washing things meant. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. There's that language of uncleanness. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is saying, you know, you look great on the outside, you're doing the washing things, you're having the, the baths that are prescribed by the Old Testament law, but inside, you're full of hatred and hypocrisy and greed and evil. And you're fools if you think that that water that you're using can somehow clean that away. Jesus says that our problem is what lies inside of us and we need God to clean that up. Now, we like to think uh, that the way that the world works is that there are some people who are evil, uh, people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, uh, you know, the people who appear in courts, uh, the people who are sent to prison, uh, those are the evil people. Uh, and then the rest of the world is made up of good people. And so all that we need to do to fix the world is to get rid of the evil people and leave the good people behind. But the problem is, the Bible says, that evil lives inside all of us. That's the problem. What was the problem with Noah, wasn't it? God began again with that one man, and it didn't work because the evil was still there. Uh, There's a man called Alexander Solzhenitsyn who lived uh, through the uh, uh, communist era of communist Russia uh, and was imprisoned in a Russian gulag. Uh, And he has written this, this famous quote about that idea that people have that we can just get rid of the evil people, the Stalinists, the people who are torturing and putting people in, 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 in camps. We can just get rid of those and leave everyone else behind. And, he, and Solzhenitsyn famously said, the dividing line, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? He, he understood the human condition. That good and evil runs through the heart of 
every person. But how do you get rid of that without destroying the very person themselves? We might find that hard to accept that reality of evil within us, but it's easy, I think, for us to see it if we just take a moment to look. We'll see it in the fact that we can become incredibly angry and bitter when we don't get exactly what we want. It just whirls up within us. We become these childish people who want and, and are a sulk if we don't get it. We can see that evil in the fact that sometimes we deliberately set out to hurt the very people that we love. One moment we're saying, I love you, and the next moment we're planning their demise and, and deliberately doing what we know will frustrate and annoy them. We see it in the fact that sometimes we choose to deliberately do the things that we know are not right. We choose to be angry. We have those moments where we think to ourselves, I could stop being angry now and that would be right. But I want to be angry. I want to stay like this. I want to ignore that person. I know it's not right, but I'm going to do it. Or we see it in the fact that our admiration of beauty can so quickly turn from appreciation to desire, overwhelming desire. So the law showed the problem. It showed the problem of this sin which lives within us. And it pointed toward an answer, but it didn't actually provide the answer itself. The law was just the street sign saying, this is the way but the destination is over there. The law showed the way, it was a street sign, but it wasn't the destination itself. And so through the rest of the Old Testament, we find God making promises of doing something more than just the law. One of the key passages where God does that is Ezekiel 36. Uh, you'll find that on the sheet. God says there, this great Old Testament promises, one of the crucial Old Testament promises, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God promises to clean up the people individually, not to destroy them in a flood, but to cleanse their hearts. How? By taking away their heart of stone, by putting his spirit within them, so that they are moved to keep God's commands and to live in perfect holiness, to do all that God desires of them. God promises uh, to do what it is that we can't do ourselves. And so there at the end of the Old Testament, there's this great promise of God coming to clean up his people, God coming to wash and to clean up their hearts. And then one day, one day, this man appears, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says that God is about to fulfill that promise. Look at, uh, again at Mark chapter 1. 
John the Baptist says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. I'm cleaning you up with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that God had promised in Ezekiel, that God had promised would uh, clean up their hearts, John says that this man is coming who will do that work. And then as John is doing this ministry uh, in the Judean countryside, Jesus comes to be baptised. On the outside, Jesus looks like any other Jewish man. But when he's baptised, we discover that he is not any other Jewish man. As he comes up out of the water, God speaks from heaven and he says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. As Jesus is baptised, God speaks from heaven and he says, this is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one that I promised through Eve. This is the one that I promised through Abraham. This is the one that I promised through David. This is the one who is holy and blameless. This is the son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the blameless descendant of Abraham. In fact, Jesus is God himself. Come in the flesh to clean us up because no one other than God could be holy and blameless in our sinful world and among our sinful humanity. Jesus is the one whose death brings the forgiveness that was pictured by those Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is the one whose death brings the forgiveness and whose resurrection brings our vindication before God, our our freedom from judgment. Jesus is the one whose death on behalf of our sins opens up the way for the Holy Spirit to come and live in us. He takes his death, takes away the hostility between us and God in order that the Holy Spirit can come and make his home within us. And as the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home in us, he unites us with the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection so that the powerful death of Jesus is at work in our life, putting our sin to death, and so that the powerful resurrection of Jesus is at work in our life, raising us up to new life in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 7, that anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Sin is so deeply bound up within us that we need God to do a supernatural work. We need God to reach down into our hearts with a kind of supernatural scouring pad and clean us up. You know, you can wash your hands or you can take a shower, but you'll come out of that the same person as you were when you went in. You can make up all kinds of special rules uh, and make all kinds of special commitments to try and become a better person, but those rules and those commitments won't change the evil that lives inside of you. You can go away and live the rest of your life in a cave, far from everybody else, 
far from the influences of television and books and uh, newspapers and whatever else it is. But you'll find in that cave that the evil that you went in there with stays with you. And it will leave with you when you come out the other side. But Jesus says that if we believe in him, then rivers of living water will flow from within us. It's a picture of a powerful work of God, this inexhaustible flow of clean water which wells up in our hearts and which washes away every evil and every pollution which keeps us from the presence of God. Jesus says, if we believe in him, that promise is ours. He doesn't say, if you believe in me and are baptised, then you'll have rivers of water flowing from within. He just says, if you believe in me. If you believe in Jesus, then you're clean already. You're clean because God has come and made his home in you. And those rivers of living water are cleaning you up and changing you. And one day when Jesus returns, you will be absolutely clean on the day when Jesus comes to gather his people and to present his church, his people as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. If you want to be forgiven by God and reconciled to him and cleaned up to live with him for all eternity, then the first and only thing that you need to do is to put your trust in the promised saviour, Jesus. It's not about baptism, but it's about believing in Jesus. It's Jesus, the promised Messiah, and entrusting ourselves to him that saves us. So what about baptism then? You only need to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's the bottom line. But Jesus also calls us as an act of obedience, flowing out of our salvation to respond with baptism. Uh, Jesus says in the Great Commission, go out into all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded them. But what does baptism mean then, and who is it for? Let me say uh, a few things uh, briefly about that, and, uh, and for the rest of it, you'll have to buy the book in a year's time, if it ever comes out. It could be another 10 years. Uh, I'll also, I should also say, I'm happy to answer questions after the service. Uh, I'll hang around down the front, so if you have questions, you're welcome to come and talk to me about those. But let me just say uh, these three things. First of all, baptism, I think, most importantly, is first and foremost a sign of what the good news about Jesus is. That's the most fundamental thing. Baptism is a sign of what the good news about Jesus is. It's a sign that through Jesus uh, we could be forgiven and cleaned up from the pollution of sin that lives within us. The water symbolizes the washing that comes through the Holy Spirit that's poured out on us as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. Baptism doesn't achieve that. It's not a magic thing. It just symbolizes it. 
So sometimes people make the error of thinking that baptism is this kind of magical, powerful act. Uh, and so they can keep going back to be rebaptized over and over again because they think that the last baptism maybe didn't, didn't kind of do the bit that was needed. But baptism isn't a, a piece of spiritual magic. It's a sign that if we believe in Jesus, we can be cleaned up through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who unites us with him. Second, then, baptism is an acknowledgement as well that the promised saviour is Jesus. Baptism is an acknowledgement that the promised saviour is Jesus. There's a parallel of sorts here, I think, between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision was a sign that God had promised uh, that God was going to raise up a descendant of Eve and Abraham uh, and David as well, through whom God was going to save a people for himself, uh, a people who would love God with all their heart. That descendant, that promised descendant, is Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, that sign has ended. It's meaningless to say that we're waiting for that promised descendant when he's actually come. But baptism is the means by which we testify that Jesus is the one who was promised. So the entire purpose of John the Baptist's ministry, he says, was to point out Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 31, John says, I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. The point of John's baptism ministry was to was to alert the people to the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So there's this sense, if you like, in terms of the, the kind of shape of the Bible, that circumcision was pointing, looking forward to this promised descendant of Jesus. It was looking ahead. And now baptism is the way that we look back and identify that the promise was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So whenever we baptize someone... In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're testifying to the fact that the promised Saviour is Jesus, through whom God is cleaning up for himself a people. So baptism is a sign of what the good news is. It's a sign that the promised Saviour is Jesus. Third, and this is the controversial move, baptism is a sign of belonging to the community, gathered around Jesus, where Jesus is known and where the gospel is taught and where people are being discipled to know and love Jesus. Baptism is a sign of belonging to the community, gathered around Jesus, where Jesus is known and where the gospel is taught and where people are being discipled to know and love Jesus. So the Old Testament community was gathered around a promised saviour and the New Testament community, the church, is gathered around a saviour who has finally come. You might find this a wildly improbable observation, but I'll say it anyway. But one of the reasons, I think, for the impasse between the two sides of baptism, between Baptists and those who hold uh, to baptising children, uh, one of the reasons, I think, for the impasse is actually that both sides have misunderstood what circumcision meant. That might seem to you wildly improbable, but that's why I spent six years of my life doing a biblical theology of circumcision uh, because I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding in that which has led to the nature of this impasse. That's a much longer story. 
But the, 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 short, the short story is both sides to some degree have uh, understood that circumcision itself was a sign of who was in, in the covenant, they would say, in the promises of God. Circumcision was a sign of who was in and versus who was out. And to some extent, both sides have imported that misunderstanding into their view of baptism. Baptism is a sign of who's kind of in uh, and who isn't. But it's important to understand that the sign of circumcision was never about saying who was saved and who wasn't. It was always just about saying that the, what the promise was. It was the promise of a saviour. From, from Abram, uh, who would, uh, from whom would come a people who would love God. And throughout the Old Testament, we see people who had that sign but who didn't believe the promise. They had the sign, but they, they, didn't, they had no interest in what God had promised. And we see people who didn't have the sign, not least half the population or the women. Uh, we see people who didn't have the sign, but who did believe the promise and who were saved. You know, I also think of Naaman the Syrian. Later in Deuteronomy, God says to the people that they need not, they need to, uh, not simply to practice uh, male circumcision, but they need to have circumcised hearts. And you might think, gosh, I'm struggling with circumcision, I'm struggling with circumcised hearts. But the b- idea behind a circumcised heart was to say, it was a metaphorical way of saying that what was promised and symbolised in the, the physical act of circumcision was taken up by people into their hearts. That is, they believed it. God's saying, you, you have to not simply do this practice, You have to actually believe the promise. In a way then, faith was a kind of a completion of circumcision rather than circumcision completing and signifying faith. Now that was badly misunderstood by people in the Old Testament and it was badly misunderstood by the people in Jesus' day as well. In Jesus' day, many of the Jewish people had to be convinced that they weren't saved just because they had this sign. They thought, we're the people of God. Uh, We must be saved on account of that. And Jesus says, no, actually, that's not true. Paul spends a large portion of his letters convincing people that that's not true. And yet many people make the same mistake with baptism today as well. They think that baptism is a sign of who is in with God and who isn't. I once uh, remember once visiting an elderly man uh, who I thought was close, relatively close uh, to dying. Uh, and I asked him whether he had confidence that w- if, when he died, he would go to be with Jesus. Uh, and the answer that he gave me, I, well, I found very disturbing. He said, I was baptised. And I thought, what's that got to do with it? But there are many people who were baptised, whether that was as children or adults, immaterial. People who were baptised, but who for the last 30 years have never set foot in a church or have never lived, continued to live a life trusting and believing and following the Lord Jesus. And yet they look back on their salvation as somehow secure, on their baptism as somehow securing and signifying their salvation. But it's not baptism that saves you. It's knowing and trusting the God of heaven and earth 
and trusting him as our saviour. Well, what does that mean for the individual? I think it means uh, this. I think it means that the person... uh, I think that baptism means that a person has joined the community, the joined the community of people who are learning Jesus and who are being discipled to follow Jesus and that they're learning Jesus and being discipled to follow Jesus as well. Baptism is a way of, a sign by which people join the community where people are learning Jesus and where they are learning Jesus and being discipled to follow Jesus as well. I think that could be a child who's born into a family or born into a church where they're being discipled from the very first moments of their lives to know and love Jesus and where people in that church community are praying for them to come to know Jesus. But I think it could also be an adult who's heard about Jesus and who wants to give their life to following him and they say, I want to, be, I want to know Jesus and follow him and I want to be part of this community and I want to be, be discipled to know and love Jesus. In both cases, the baptism either of the child or the adult doesn't make them a Christian It doesn't confirm that they've really and truly believed. But it does confirm that they've begun a journey of being discipled to know and love Christ. And in both cases, as they continue in that life of Christian discipleship, we'll see whether that's really true or not. We'll see whether they bear the fruits of genuine salvation or whether they need to be called again and again to faith true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you wait till someone's an adult to baptise them or not. You still have to keep asking the question, has the gospel really taken root in their life? Baptism is not the end of a journey. It's not a graduation ceremony that says, I've now come to know Jesus. It's the beginning of a journey of learning Jesus that continues until the day that we die. Look, there's way more uh, that can be said about that. I'm not going to say any more. And I'm not going to pretend that what I've said this morning is a lay-down misere, uh, you know, that it kind of seals the deal. Uh, But I I, I personally think that that makes the best sense of the biblical material. Finally then, if that's right, what does it mean? Well, as I said, it means that baptism is the first step in the path of discipleship. So if you're following Jesus and you're learning to trust and love him, then I think you should be baptised. If you're coming to this church and you belong to this church because you want to follow Jesus and trust in him and grow in living for him, then you should be baptised. And you can talk to me or Steve about that afterwards uh, and we can have a conversation about that. And if I can be more controversial, I think it also means uh, that if your children are part of this church and they're being discipled to know and trust Jesus, then I personally think that it makes sense to baptise them as well. Not as a sign that they're saved or that they believe, but as a sign that they belong to a community where Jesus is known and where they're being discipled to know and love Jesus. Look, whether you agree with me on that or not is something that you need to prayerfully decide before God by searching the Bible. But whether or not you agree on that, the most important thing is that each of us grasps the heart of baptism 
and that is the person and work of Jesus. The message of baptism at its core is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you've given us this precious sign of baptism to remind us of what the gospel is, that you promised to clean us up without destroying us by uniting us with the death and resurrection of Jesus, which he died in our place, uniting us with that by the Holy Spirit so that we might die to sin and become alive to righteousness through Jesus. Lord, we pray that every single one of us would receive that great and precious promise by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us too uh, uh, as a response to that, to think through ourselves prayerfully and in good conscience uh, what it means to be baptised for ourselves and for our children. And Lord, too, we pray that as we do that, that you would help us not to be divided by that, but to be knit together in the bonds of love, even perhaps as we disagree on the minor things, Lord, that we might be united more and more on what is absolutely central, which is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved by him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.